Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Dr. Sanjay Gupta about his book, Keep Sharp, Build a Better Brain at Any Age, which tackles the subject of brain health from the perspective of what we can do to build and maintain a better brain to prevent cognitive decline. Dr. Gupta is an associate professor of neurosurgery at Emory University School of Medicine, a member of the National Academy of Medicine and CNN's Emmy Award-winning chief medical correspondent. He is also the host of the podcast, Chasing Life. This coming season, he'll be discussing weight and health, including an exploration of the new weight loss drugs on the market. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, welcome to That Said. Delighted to be here. Thank you. I really enjoy these conversations. Thank you for having me. So before we delve into our discussion about the book, Staying Sharp, Build a Better Brain at Any Age, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to write this book? Oh, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a doctor. I'm a neurosurgeon. I've been sort of fascinated with the brain for a long time, since I was an early teenager. And I'm also a journalist, uh, Michael, as you know, an investigative journalist. So in many ways, Keep Sharp, this book was um, sort of bringing those two worlds together. There's a lot about the brain that I know just because I trained in this area, but there's so much that we're learning. And it was really worth sort of evaluating all the science out there at a time when people are thinking about their brains more than ever. So that was that was basically it. It was a few year long project was supposed to release right in the middle of the pandemic. But you know how these things go. So but it, it's it's come out a couple of years ago now. So, in fact, in the middle of the pandemic, for those who listen to our podcast, they can revert back to listen to our prior uh, conversation yeah. about your um, pandemic book, which was a great read. Thank you. Too. So on the jacket flap of the book, mm. it's written, it says, you probably do all sorts of things to keep your body healthy and fit. But how often do you do the same for your brain? Until recently... Even the scientific community thought that brain developed only up to a certain age. But that thinking is wrong. An increasing volume of evidence shows that you can enjoy quick thinking brain throughout your entire life. It's pretty provocative stuff. Walk us through that at a high level, and then we're going to delve into the details of this. I think with regard to the first part, Michael, you know, I... If, if you go back uh, uh, several decades, there was a time when we didn't really think about trying to prevent disease, optimize heart function, for example. Now there's all sorts of, I mean, you're a cyclist. There's all sorts of, I'm not sure if that's the reason you cycle, but a lot of people pursue all these different things in pursuit of, of optimizing their heart function. We haven't really thought about the brain that way. It's, it's really fascinating to me. I think maybe because it's in the skull and it's harder to, to sort of access. We just think we got what we got and that's it. You know, the idea of trying to prevent brain disease, the idea of trying to optimize your brain function, that's a relatively new thing. That's where we were with almost the rest of the body, you know, several decades ago, just now getting there with the brain. The second part uh, of what I said was, was this idea that, you, you know, we, we thought you developed your brain up until sort of mid twenties, which is the case, but the idea that neurons could continue to be grown in your brain, these brain cells could continue to be grown. It's relatively new knowledge. 
we thought, again, you got what you got. That was it. Certain things accelerated the process like alcohol or whatever, you know, but, but the, the whole thinking about the brain has changed. Now we, we talk, we'll talk in a minute about concepts of resiliency and cognitive reserve and neuroplasticity, um, which is, I think, what we're heading into. But before we delve into the first part of the book, which is called The Brain, where you tell us about the brain, there is in the book a 24-question self-assessment, which I took and did okay. But can you tell us a little bit about the assessment? We're not going to have time to talk about all 24 questions, but tell us about if you're going to start thinking about your brain in the same way that you think about your body, Mm. what, what, what should the 24 assessment uh, questionnaire tell us? It's basically predicated on this idea that um, so much of the cognitive decline that we see, especially in the developed world is because of very preventable and predictable sort of risk factors. Uh, they fall into the big three things, um, how you nourish yourself, how you rest yourself, how you move yourself. And really, if you look at these, these basic predictors now, uh, they're pretty strongly correlated with the likelihood of developing dementia later on in life. So, so this wasn't about, Hey, you need to take a certain medication or you, you need to do anything. There was nothing prescriptive about this. This was basically an assessment to say, where are you? Because the vast majority of the things that that increase one's risk for dementia other than genetic factors are preventable things so that was that was sort of it yeah so in talking about the brain you just said that the the brain has been thought of as having a fixed set of neurons and synapses and stuff and that over life uh, you would drain your allotment and and that was that but 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 that's not true and this invites this conversation I want to start with now, which is on resiliency and mm-hmm. cognitive reserve and how you can actually propagate new brain cells and make the ones we have already work more efficiently, more effectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I mean, this, this is, this is the crux of it. I mean, this is why I wrote the book. I mean, I, l- let me let me say a couple things. First of all, this you, this is different than strict neuroplasticity. Think of neuroplasticity like this idea that hey, a part of my so let's say someone's had a stroke. Now that part of the brain they may have lost certain neuronal function in the area of the stroke. You know, brain cells have died, and now you're recruiting from other areas of the brain to sort of backstop, backfill the 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 loss from the stroke. What we're talking about is growing new brain cells, not just, Hey, I'm going to recruit from other places, growing new brain cells. And, and I, that's revelatory. And that's a big deal sort of in the world of, of neuroscience for sure. I think that the, the concept of resilience or redundancy then sort of naturally follows. Um, think of it like this. People always ask me, how much of your brain do you really use? You only use 10%, whatever. And I think the best way of describing that is that we use our entire brains. But it's kind of like if you were to think about your brain as a city, where are you most of the time? You're in your office, you're at your home, you may be, you know, in a couple places. That's how you're, you're in those areas of the brain most of the time, but you got to get from your office to your, to your home by road. So the roads make up a lot of the brain function. 
Are they being used all the time? No. Are they necessary? Yes. So, so here's, here's the sort of thing is that most of us live our, use our brains like we live our lives. We're only in a few places at once, uh, at any given time. So 90% of the time, we're only using 10% of the brain. If you start to think about doing new things that are outside your normal activities, you're starting to use different parts of the brain. The analogy would be like you're now traveling to different cities and you're building new cities in these other parts of, of your brain. Um, that's really the fundamental conceit of resiliency. And, and if you say, Hey, look, I'm just going to build up, you know, stronger neurons in other parts of my brain. How do you do that? Um, you do that by doing different things or doing the same thing in different ways. A lot of people, they brain train by doing things over and over again. I'll do a crossword every day. Great. That teaches you how to learn, drive those roads that you already know really, really well. So now you've gotten even better at driving the road that you already knew really well. If you want to really build resiliency, you've got to do something totally different. People, after I wrote the book, uh, Aaron Burnett, who you know, um, one of the anchors, she had read the book and she started painting with her left hand. And she's now this painter with her left hand, which was her way of sort of creating that redundancy and resiliency in the brain. Mm. But neuroplasticity, um, the retraining of the brain, also is important in um, cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Exposure and response prevention stuff. It's in a, um, it's not brain training so much, but it is a big component of anxiety relief and overcoming OCD types of behaviors, Yeah. Yeah, you know, I I don't know as much about the data around CBT for anxiety specifically. You know, there's I, there's a lot that we've been reporting on regarding post-traumatic stress and things like that. But yes, I mean, I think that there's plenty of evidence to show that these types of therapies can work for, for certain things. Mm. So you wrote in the book something which was interesting to me. Well, the whole book was interesting to me. Uh, and you, you said that people are more afraid of dementia than death these days. And it asks the question of, well, is there anything I can do to prevent it? Which was the heart of, of, of the book in some sense. But one thing that you said, which I'd like you to sort of flesh out a little bit, which is you emphasize that while the onset of diseases like dementia or Lewy body um, generally manifests later in life, 85 years old, more or less, um, it is actually developing in people uh, much earlier in life. Um, And you write that it is something that is something we have the ability to control now before it manifests itself when at that point it's, it's too late. Do I have that right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, what, what we can say, I think pretty assuredly is that like someone who has Alzheimer's disease, and they develop symptoms in their 70s or 80s. We know because of all this, this data now looking at the brains of people at younger ages that that person likely had plaques and tangles, the, the, the association of Alzheimer's things in their brains probably decades earlier, maybe even in their 40s. So that, that was really, I thought that was really interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, we think about these things happening in tandem. The plaques and tangles come, that's affecting my memory, my judgment, things like that. Plaques and tangles have actually been there for a long time. And then all of a sudden something makes them what we call clinical, makes them have symptoms. So, so much of the therapy, for example, has been focused on getting rid of plaques in the brain. 
Well, we are, we already know that you can have plaques and have totally normal function. So it's not just the plaques. I, and again, that, that's, that's a really important point, I think, in science and, and also where to direct your attention. Do you want to direct, direct your attention before the plaques form? Probably not because you know, again, you can have plaques and normal function. So what I thought was interesting is a lot of the focus now, I think, in terms of treatments and how to address dementia is focused on that preclinical time. So you have plaques, but you don't have symptoms. It's that part of the time frame that that's now getting a lot of the attention. And one of the things you find, one of the things you find is that for some reason, there are people who have plaques in their brain, never develop symptoms, others who do. So what is it about their lifestyle during those several decades of life that aren't about preventing plaques? They're about preventing those plaques from turning into something problematic. And that was, that was, that was the focus of the book, that preclinical time. Yeah. And we'll talk about the five pillars that, that yeah. form the heart of the uh, program that you, you outline. But I wanted to ask you one question. Maybe it's off topic. And if it is, you could just say, no, Michael, that's off topic and stick to the point. But where does consciousness reside? <laughs> I feel like we need like a good glass of wine sitting in a, <laughs> a lounge somewhere, you know, or, you know, look, I don't know is the answer. <laughs> I think there are people who, who have all sorts of notions about where it resides. And I think the, you know, if you talk to certain people, they say it's even non-local, meaning it's not local, localized to the brain, um, or localized even to the body. It's, it's, it's somewhere else. Um, I don't, I don't know. I'm a neurosurgeon. You know, I, I trained as a doctor and then did seven years of neurosurgery training and I, and I operate on the brain all the time. And I think in some ways it's demystifying when you operate on the brain because you're, you're, you're holding parts of the brain that are responsible for very significant things, motor function, sensory function, but also memories and emotion and your ability to love and, and hate and, and all of that. So the idea that consciousness could reside somewhere in there, I think is, I, I think it seems quite logical, but I don't know is the answer. It's, it's an age old question and one that may never really be answered. You should type that into chat GPT. I'd be curious what, what it says. Yeah, I, I, I might do that. Um, cause I was just thinking as I was reading the book about whether there's a difference between the mind, self-awareness, consciousness <laughs> and the brain, sort of the, the, what it is, two and a half pounds of gook. That you stick your hands into <laughs> periodically. I don't. I, I. Well, first of all, three and a half pounds. And and I, well, I, in my, I, I, I was using my brain, which is two, which is only two and a half. That's funny. No, but look, and I don't call it gook either. I call it. I call it the most enigmatic three and a half pounds of tissue in the known universe. Um, and and I think that there is distinctions between the brain and the mind. Um, the brain is still the sort of functional aspect, the anatomical aspect. I think the mind is, is in some ways everything else. It's a fascinating topic that we, we could do a whole hour just on that, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And with, even with my 2.5 pound brain, <laughs> right. especially with. Right. Exactly. So we're going to take a quick break and then we'll, we'll be right back. We're back with Dr. Sanjay Gupta discussing his book, Staying Sharp. Now, Dr. Gupta, uh, uh, you may know, because uh, we, we talk periodically, that my mom, age 97, yeah. just died uh, three weeks ago. 
I heard. And, and she, she, yes, thank you. She was a, she was a super ager. Uh, yeah. She was completely healthy and had her wits about her uh, till the very end. At 96 and a half, she developed colon cancer or colon cancer mm-hmm. really manifested itself. She probably had mm-hmm. it for a while and, and, and she died peacefully four months later without any pain and with me at her bedside. Lucky, uh, honestly. Yeah. One of her eulogizers said about her in talking about her being a super ager that he was convinced that the reason she was able to be what she was was because she was resilient and she constantly reinvented herself. (laughs) And these things sort of are the beginnings of the five pillars, it seems, that you outline for um, staying sharp and maintaining a, a healthy healthy brain. So if it's okay, can we work through the five of them, sure. keeping in mind my mom's super age stuff and see how it, it sort of features into it. She was a school teacher. And so if there's um, <laughs> any, any thoughts that you have, most of many of our listeners are CEOs, C-suite executives. So if there's anything mm. that you think is particular to these types of uh, listeners, shout it out. So, well, no. I, I'll let you, I'll let you name the pillars, but let me just say about your mom being a school teacher for a second. The idea that you can be an educator and continuously be challenging yourself in this way, how to, how to teach kids, how to, you know, convey, you know, important knowledge to them. Uh, and plus, you know, just the joy of probably being around young, younger children and things like that probably really was, was very sustaining. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I feel very lucky sometimes to be a journalist, not for the exact same reasons, but I think finding jobs or finding aspects of your own job that are continuously challenging you, continuously, continuously teaching you something is really important. You get to do the same thing. So whatever it may be, um, and even if it's within your current job, how do you continuously challenge or learn new things is, is really important. Yeah, not only for yourself, but I guess for your the team of people yeah. that you need to develop a, a culture around. Absolutely. So you write pillar number one, movement. Yeah. That you, this is the sentence I wrote down. You write that when people ask you what is the most single important thing that they can do to enhance their brain's function and resiliency disease, your answer is one word exercise yeah so let's start with movement the the first pillar and tell us about the correlation between physical uh, exertion physical exercise and the scientifically documented proof that it improves brain health and function yeah and i'll preface by saying if you you if you need to cut me off cut me off because i love this stuff michael and i could talk about it all day um movement has the most evidence behind it when it comes to brain function. And just going back to what we were saying earlier, I think a lot of people have always associated movement and exercise, aerobic exercise, whatever, with cardiovascular health. That's why people typically did it. But I think it's very clear the impact that it has on brain health as well. In fact, when we talk about the ability to generate new neurons, the question I thought you were going to ask next was, wow, you know, I want some of that, you know, and that's what people usually ask. And if you had to pick something that is most likely to result in what's called neurogenesis, which is growth of new neurons, neurogenesis, then I think movement 
is is the best. It has the most data sort of behind it. But one thing I will say, which I think is interesting, and, and I think your audience will fundamentally understand this, is that when you when you move, you create something known as brain-derived neurotrophic factor. I'm giving you the the sort of nitty-gritty because I think it's really fascinating. So you it's like miracle growth for the brain. I want to get miracle growth for the brain. How do I do it? I move. It's like you're set, sending a signal to the body. I want to be here. I want to use my brain, make more neurons. So, and movement is the clearest way to send that signal. So that was, that was really interesting information. What I think also came about after that was this realization that if you intensely move, if you're very intensely exercising, that can be really great for your cardiovascular health, but you also make a lot of stress hormone, cortisol, when you intensely move. So think about that. You're, you're intensely on your bike. So you're doing all these great things for your heart and blood vessels and everything like that. You're making a lot of this brain derived neurotrophic factor fantastic. And you're also making a lot of cholesterol. I'm sorry, a lot of cortisol. The cortisol actually impedes the brain derived neurotrophic factor. Okay. So what does that mean? That means when you intensely exercise, that could be great for your heart, but not necessarily that good for your brain. If you want to actually promote neurogenesis in the best possible way, you have to sort of moderately exercise. You got to move, but not so much so that you're making all this extra stress hormone. So it turns out to be really interesting. The people, some of the longest lived, most cognitively fit people on the planet hardly ever intensely exercise. They walk everywhere and they walk up hills and they do other things, but do they get on a bike and, and, pour their heart out into the bike for 30 minutes? No, they wouldn't do that. Now, again, that might be very good for your cardiovascular health, but if, you're, if it's brain health you're talking about, moderate activity is sort of the key. Mm. And you, as an athlete, I've known this for a while, one of the the better ways it seems to exercise, whether it be moderate or a little bit more intensely, is through um, heart rate observations what's your resting heart rate and what elevation do you get it to but mm. also intervals integrating ups and downs in in your uh, training program any particular day do i have that right yeah i mean i think that's what the data has shown and and interestingly if you take it a step back um in in blue zones you know these places again where people live very long healthy happy lives um not only do they walk a lot, they walk, they have hills. Almost all of those blue zones were characterized by having significant elevation changes in terms of where they were walking. That is the interval. That is sort of a classic sort of functional interval. So yeah, and and that was associated with, you know, significant longevity. Yeah. So it's not just I'm on the bike maintaining my heart rate at X steady state, but I have to spin up for three minutes and then go back down and spin up for three minutes to go back down. And same thing on the treadmill. You don't walk at a flat rate necessarily. You elevate and and go down or you pick up your speed and go back down. Right. That's the, right. That's the training from the blue zone studies. That was, that was what, you know, again, they, they were doing it in terms of elevation changes, but yes, that was, it was the same functional concept. I read a book uh, on this podcast uh, by uh, Sally Jenkins, mm. uh, the great Washington Post, mm-hmm. Hall of Fame uh, sports writer. And she's talking, the book is called The Right Call. And it's about 
what you can learn from the athletic field into daily life. And one of the things that she talks about is the importance of athletic conditioning on the brain. And she, she writes, and I'd like you to just react to it a little bit because it's sort of in keeping of what we're saying. She writes that athletic conditioning is not something we do to purely build muscles. Neuroscience teaches us that physical training increases gray matter in the frontal lobes of the brain, enhancing working memory, attention, focus, and executive function. The coaches told her, anyone who wants to consistently be excellent in their living, even if they work purely from the neck up, must have more than a passing acquaintance with physical exercise. She says that all of the coaches told her that mistakes happen when you're tired. And if you are not physically fit, you are more likely to, over the course of the day, make mistakes. And then she Mm. gives the example of um, Bob Iger, who's the chairman of Disney, age Mm -hmm. 70. He wakes up every morning at 4.15, does 45 minutes on the Versa trainer, does weights, adds bicycle, bicycle riding. And he says, if you're not doing this, you can't be an effective CEO. <laughs> so can, can, does she have it right, more or less? Uh, yeah, look, I, first of all, I got to say something about Bob Iger. I, I, um, I did the Malibu Triathlon uh, several years in a row, and I'd always see him there. And he always was, I mean, it was always amazing because this was, the, um, you know, five, six years ago, very, very fit. You know, and you think, I think a lot of times you think, well, this is obviously a busy guy, uh, a lot of demands on him. How's he able to, people always complain, how do I fit in my exercise? And that's one thing that struck me about him. Not only was he getting it in, but, you know, he was competing at a pretty high level, Malibu triathlon, which was, I thought, pretty impressive. Yeah, I think, I think when it comes to all the things that we say about activity and movement and very clear evidence of neurogenesis, Sally's got it. Sally's got it right. I mean, I think there's more than that probably when it comes to athletes who are that dedicated, people who are that dedicated with regard to their physical fitness usually extend that to other parts of their lives. I mean, I, I, we hire people to become neurosurgeons at our hospital and we're obviously looking for all sorts of things to be a brain surgeon. One is, you know, obviously how they've done in school and their propensity, but another is how diligent are, are they about things in other parts of their lives? And I think athletics is a big part of that. Yeah. And I think it's a lesson for our CEO listening audience that not only do they have to shape up, but they have to look in potential hires for the, yeah. for those same, same qualities. In, in the book, Sally Jenkins, uh, talks about Magnus Carlson, the world, uh, chess champion. And, and she says that he's on a very rigorous physical fitness training program, mm. even though he just plays chess, just mm-hmm. plays chess, even though he's a chess, mm-hmm world grandmaster he says that in the course of a grandmaster chess tournament he'll lose 20 pounds um really over the course of the the multiple multiple week tournament from the stress of 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 the of the tournament even though he's just if you will sitting in a chair thinking right yeah i mean stress can be a killer especially if you're also not eating and and everything else that comes with that so 20 pounds that's uh yeah, I don't think people lot. are going to become a, a grandmaster for weight loss, but that's that's impressive. Yeah, well, I'm, hopefully I have that number right. Well, I'll I'll fact check it. So, okay, pillar, pillar two, he, he loses a lot of weight. We'll put it that way. He loses <laughs> okay. a lot of weight. Pillar two um, 
is something we've just touched upon a little bit, which is purpose, learning, and discovery. Mm. And this was interesting to me as I look to my retirement years. You write that one of the consequences for people who retire early is an increased risk of developing dementia. Recent studies show that for each additional year of work, the risk of getting dementia is reduced by 3.2%. So talk about this in terms of the concept of purpose learning uh, discovery, because you can retire theoretically from a paying job and be purposeful and learning and discovering, um, even though, quote, unquote, it's in your retirement year. So talk about this conceptually. That what you just said at the end is a- absolutely true. Uh, I think that a lot of people, when they retire, they can find the same degree of, of purpose in their, in their lives. So, but that is the minority, Michael. That's what the studies have shown. The vast majority of people, when they retire, not only do they not have a constant intellectual sort of pattern of stimulation through their work, they don't have the same degree of connection because they're, you know, there's a social aspect to, to, to work. And, um, that, you know, that, that's really important as well when it comes to dementia. What I thought was interesting is that people say, Hey, look, when I retire, I'll have more time on my hands and therefore I'll exercise more. I'll get to the gym more. Actually find that people who, when they retired, their exercise levels actually went down. So it's not only do you not have the intellectual stimulation, the human connection, but you start to lose the will to even do things that you promised you would do once you retired. Um, I'm not saying that's everybody. And, you know, I think that everyone's obviously different, but I know for myself, and I'll just be candid here that I probably will never retire because I know that I, I, even if I'm not intellectually stimulated for a few days, it's almost like I can feel my neurons starting to wither and I'll read. I read a lot. I read three books over the break. You know, I, I do other things to sort of just keep the brain going. But there is something about being in situations like we are as investigative journalists, as doctors, that constantly makes you do surprising, unpredictable things. And I think that's really important for brain development. So that's the lesson, I think, you know, try not to retire. I I, I know that sounds weird because it's the aspiration. I'm going to get to that retirement age. But you lose a lot more than you realize when you retire. So and if you do retire figuring out how to maintain that purpose is, is critically important. So two two things. One is it's doing something that is new, it seemed, that featured prominently. You talked about the person who does the crossword puzzle or Wordle mm-hmm. every day and thinking, right. well, this is great. I'm stimulating my brain. But it's really the doing of something that is new and right. cognitively stimulating as a consequence of its newness that that matters so it's like sort of there's the right and wrong way to employ your brain in this topic yeah i i think that doing the word puzzles crosswords and things like that that's that's perfectly fine it's not a wrong way but again if the you know to borrow the metaphor from earlier you probably could drive from your work to your home with your eyes closed i mean you know how many traffic lights there are you know how many people you're likely to to encounter, you know, when traffic is bad, all of that, you're going to get better at knowing all that when you keep doing the same activity over and over again, you get real, what do, what do crossword puzzles make you really good at crossword puzzles? So, you know, it's, it's, it is translatable beyond that to some extent. Um, don't get me wrong, 
But I think once you start to do things that are entirely new, that's when you're starting to activate these other parts of your brain. I mean, and if you can do it with the, some motor component with your hands to some extent, learning an instrument, for example, is a, is a very cognitively stimulating resilience builder. Um, you're using your hands, you're learning something new. It can be a little uncomfortable, especially if you're older, if you never played an instrument. So things like that make probably the biggest difference. Mm, I'm going to call Erin Burnett and see if I can take art lessons. There you go. She's pretty good. Yeah. So I read a book, not for my podcast, but just in my readings uh, by um, the Christian pastor, Rick Warren. And it was entitled The Purpose Driven Life. And you talk about this too, about having a strong sense of purpose in your life as being part of a healthy brain mm. um, program. So can we talk about that now, the, the strong sense of purpose and how that plays into this five pillars that we're talking about? Part of the reason I really wanted to include purpose in addition to discovery and the building of resilience that we were just talking about was when you really looked at the data and you said from, and this was looking more, I guess, to your question earlier, more about healthy mind, even as much as healthy brain. But when it looked at people who had some of the lowest rates of, of mental illness or depression, anxiety, uh, and it was trying to find associations with other parts of their life, what they found was those people who self-described as having significant purpose in their lives had the lowest rates of many of those, those maladies of the mind that we talk about. Um, so I, I thought that was, I thought that was really interesting, especially again, as people get older and they're worried about dementia, we know that, um, many, many things can increase your risk for dementia. We were really looking at the things that lowered your risk and having that purpose seemed to translate sort of across the board in terms of being associated with a healthy mind. When I took the 24 part questionnaire, that introduces the book that which i failed is this third part which is sleep and relaxation principally <laughs> sleep and and uh you wrote uh and i'll quote it chronic inadequate sleep puts people at a higher risk for dementia depression and mood disorders learning and memory problems heart disease high blood pressure weight gain and obesity, diabetes, fall-related injuries, and cancer. Right. That, that's, that's something. So talk about, about, first let's talk about sleep, and then I want to talk a little bit about um, stress reduction, meditation, because those things go hand in hand, it, it seems to me. So let's start with sleep. Can I, can I ask you, when you hear that list of all the things that poor sleep is associated with, does does it not make you want to get good sleep? Absolutely. I I, I wrote a note to myself saying, "Well, this is a wake up call." You know, no no pun intended. <laughs> why why don't why, like I'm just curious. Just since it's a podcast and you can actually talk on a podcast, why don't you get enough sleep? I don't know. I get to bed on time. I have enough hours in the bed. I'm not like I only have four hours for sleep. Um, Got it. I can function on four hours. I, I don't subscribe to that myth i understand yeah. the importance of <laughs> right. eight, eight hours of sleep i just my mind is is like last night my mind is racing i'm thinking about this podcast and our conversation uh, and i'm having trouble sort of uh taking it down a level 
and I Got sleep it. in a room that's probably 64 degrees. So it's, it's cold in there, but yeah, I don't You're know. You're doing all the right sleep hygiene know. things and everything. You, well, you know, the reason I ask is I think in some ways we're, we are talking about sleep again, the way that we talked about heart disease a few decades ago, you know, like if, if people say, Hey, you know, like there are people who don't value sleep. And to me, it's, it's like saying several decades ago, I, I just got to eat a, a, a steak every night. I just got to have my 64 ounces of steak every night, you know, and ah, the heart disease thing, maybe, maybe not, you know, and now I think it's pretty clear that, that people are much more uh, judicious about their diet and, and trust that, you know, there's things that are good for you. I think that's where we are with sleep. There's still a lot of people who just say, I just don't need it. And we know that that's not true. I mean, I wish it were true. Certainly you and I are busy guys, but that's not the case. Two, two things I'll tell you quickly about sleep that are sort of functional because I'm sort of a functional guy. One is that your, your short-term memories, your experiences throughout the day get transferred to the long-term memory stores when you sleep. Okay. So you've had this amazing day. You've done all these amazing things. You're, you're, you're highly engaged in life. Unless you actually get the sleep, you're not then transferring those experiences into something that is the, the permanent real of your life. You know, your long-term memory stores. To me, that was enough. I, I have three kids. I do all these things. If I don't remember this stuff 20, 30 years ago, that's bad. And it's not that I won't remember. It's that it's never transferred to my long-term memory. So it's almost like it never even exists at some point. To me, sleep was important for that reason alone, aside from all the physical benefits that you talked about earlier. The second thing I'll just say quickly is that, you know, our bodies are constantly creating waste, uh, just like our houses. You got to get rid of the waste. That's what your lymph nodes do in your body. You know, lymph nodes under your arms, things like that. That's what those, those are doing. Same thing is happening in your brain. You got to get rid of the waste. Waste clearance from the brain is happening all the time, but it's much more effective when you sleep. If you don't sleep, you're not taking out the garbage in, in your brain, and that can that can create long-term problems as well. Yeah, you're right that the the body um, does not, or the brain does not really pause or shut down. It's just going through the cycle, um, a regenerative phase. And if you're denying it, then just as you said, it's like you're not hitting save on your document yeah, before, right. you, before you close your computer. That's a good way of putting it. That's, that's, uh, that, that, that is the thing that always strikes me. People will often say about things, I forgot, right? They'll, they'll, they'll say, I forgot that thing. So you didn't, it's not that you forgot. It's that you actually never remembered. You never actually stored this in a memory store. So it's, it's very different with dementia. You know, people worried about dementia. I forgot. Nope. Actually, it was your body works a certain way and you didn't allow your body to work that way, uh, which was to store this in a long-term memory store. It's a fundamental point, but I think really interesting. And I think hopefully it, it, it actually alleviates some of the fear that people have because they think I'm, I'm just losing my memory. No, it's that you're, you never actually pause to remember in the first place. Hmm. Fascinating. Can I ask you just a quick question? It sounds like I'm asking about it for me, but I think probably <laughs> you got a friend. Sleep- I got a friend yeah, got, with this problem. Got a friend. Uh, no, but I expect that our CEOs who are listening and, and the listening audience at large has sleep as a, as a, as an issue. What's your thinking about things like THC, CBD, PEA, melatonin, 
they can be very effective. You, you know, I mean, I think with things like melatonin, which is the, the hormone of darkness, think of it like that. You release melatonin when you sleep. For some people, they're not making enough and taking it can, can help. Um, and for some people, uh, a stronger sleep aid might be necessary as well. You know, I, I, I don't, I think you got to be very, very judicious about that. And most people don't need prescription sleep aids. And frankly, I think they can be dangerous, especially for older people. They're associated with falls and things. But I got to tell you, Michael, on the CBD, I did an entire documentary looking at the use of cannabis in senior citizens, um, people over the age of 65. Um, and it was really interesting to me um, to look at, first of all, they're the fastest growing population of users of cannabis. And most often, they're using it for things like sleep. And so as a result of that, you have a lot of data now that's being collected in places, frankly, all over the world. Um, Israel, probably the, the most structured data collection, but a lot of data being collected here as well. And the bottom line answer to your question is that I think it can be very effective for people. Um, CBD uh, with THC, there's different strains. The, bi- the biggest challenge, I think, for people is finding what actually works for you. And that's because we have an unregulated system when it comes to cannabis in this in this country got to make sure you're getting something that's legitimate first of all because there's a lot of you know tainted products out there and then you got to figure out what strain works for you so there's places in florida for example where doctors are prescribing this and working with people to find the right strain it's an entirely new class of medicines and i think there's a lot of optimism around it is pea also something that you're familiar with not, not as I, I don't know the data really around PEA. I, I dug deep into CBD, THC, and you mm. know, as I mentioned, um, obviously the things like melatonin and and prescription meds. Yeah, and uh, it's, for the listening audience, I think there's stuff out there about your interaction with THC, CBD, and um, autism, right? Yeah, we we you know I've done seven documentary films on this topic and one of them was was purely about um the the impact of cbd on on children with autism adults with autism as well and it was really interesting i mean they've known for some time that there was a benefit to using cbd for seizures and they realized that for many children with autism there was a correlation between autism and seizures and they found that in those patients whose seizures improved their autism symptoms often improved as well and that's what sort of launched all these studies specifically looking at cannabis and autism. Hmm. I mentioned that there's a hand-in-hand thing here, which is sleep, but also um, stress reduction. Uh, specifically, I'm interested in sort of mindfulness and analytic uh, meditation. Uh, you're a meditator, so <laughs> talk a little bit about the, the coupling of, of good sleep but also sort of like rest and relaxation yeah. in the course of the, the, the day when you're awake. Yeah. You know, in, in the, in the book, you know, it's funny. I, I try not to even use the word sleep as much as, as rest. I, I don't use the word diet. I use nourish. I don't use the word exercise. I use movement. Um, so rest is really important, a rested brain. And as you pointed out correctly earlier, even when you sleep, your brain's not necessarily at rest. So being very dedicated to trying to quiet your brain, quiet your mind, uh, was, was something that became important to me as I started researching this and looking into it more and more. Um, all sorts of, many of the things that we've talked about so far, 
again, they're happening all the time in your brain. You're constantly laying down new thoughts and trying to store things in long-term memory, clearing waste, all that. But there are times when these things happen more efficiently. And one of those times happens to be when you are meditating. Um, for me, meditation was always challenging. Um, this is going to sound like a, a, a name drop and I don't mean it to be, but I had a chance to, to meditate with the Dalai Lama, um, for some time. And it was, it was really interesting because he's, you know, he's meditated his whole life. And so I think at some point, what becomes so second nature to you, how quickly you can go into a state of meditation, how long you can sustain it. He's been doing it his whole life. Um, I was, I was terrible at it. And I, you know, it's kind of like, you know, being a minor, you know, like little league baseball player going to play with Mickey Mantle or something, you know, and, and, but one thing he taught me was, and he, he was very, very congenial about this, but he said, for some people like me, you have to really focus on something. A lot of people are told to quiet their mind. Quieting the mind is hard. I, my, my guess, Michael, for you, quieting the mind is hard based on what you were saying about sleep earlier. Um, but being able to quiet the mind and getting really good at it, practicing it, almost like feeling your mind quiet, visualizing your mind quiet can be challenging for other people focusing on a very specific thing and blocking everything else out. One thing you're thinking about and you put that thing in a thought bubble and you let it rise above you, you disentangle it from anything on earth, you know, just it's its own thought bubble. That's also challenging, but that is point or analytical meditation. And that is something that the Dalai Lama spent a lot of time teaching me. And again, for advising of our corporate executive world in which you and I both find ourselves and our listeners are, is, is, should it be done like at lunchtime? Should, should, <laughs> should you find it like during the, we'll call it an eight hour workday. None of us have an eight hour workday, but would you, suggest that you find this period of rest during that eight hour day to help regenerate or is it a beginning end of day sort of activity in in your experience well in in my own personal experience i really truly do it whenever i can i mean there's times when i do it on plane rides and and other, other parts of my day i don't have a set time i try and do it in the morning if i can my mornings start very early and Again, I have two jobs that are highly unpredictable, so I can't, it's very hard for me to like just schedule it. But what I will say is this though, I wouldn't think of it as throwaway time. Um, when I started analytical meditation, before I'm about to embark on some big project in my day, a lot of times I will analytically meditate on it. And that means like taking the, let's say it's a thing that I'm writing. I might just take the concept of what I'm writing and put it into a thought bubble and put it into a bubble and just let that rise disentangle it from any emotional attachments like oh, i can't write it because of this or i can't do it because of this person's not going to like what i've said here no just disentangle it from all that and just block everything else out and just focus on that bubble it's not only good for your brain but i think it can be very helpful for your day your your, your professional life as well i want to turn to our next topic in, in a minute but we'll take a quick break and then we'll be right back Are you suffering from a narcissistic co-parent or feeling alienated from your own children? Or maybe you're just tired of getting multiple emails, texts, and voicemails from your co-parent that make you want to scream. Hey, this is Diane Dirks and Rick Voiles inviting you to listen to our popular podcast, Co-Parent Dilemmas, where we give practical solutions to those with impossible co-parents. 
Each week, we answer your questions and help you understand how to prioritize your kids while setting life-saving co-parent boundaries. We promise you'll think we've been living in your house. Listen to Co-Parent Dilemmas. If you've got a difficult co-parent, you can't afford not to. The the fourth of the five pillars is nourishment, food Mm. for thought. And this you talk about both in terms of what you eat and what you don't eat, um, but also how you eat. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about the, the, those those two components of it? Yeah, I you know and and again cut me off if you need to but but how we nourish ourselves is is obviously critically important when it comes to brain function. Here here was the big surprise for me because your audience kind of probably understands fundamentally what a healthy diet is. But here was the big surprise. Um when you consume too much energy, uh, let's say you're eating a lot of sugar for example, the body's response to this is really interesting. Um, it, we know it's bad for our bodies and we, it's hard for us to metabolize all this sugar. But as a general rule, what your body's trying to do is store as much energy as it can. It's like the biggest capacitor, if you want to borrow from electronics. It just wants to store energy as much as it can because it, it fundamentally doesn't know when it's going to be recharged. It assumes that it's not going to be recharged for a long time. That's how the human body physiologically is designed. Feast or famine. We don't, we're getting fed right now, but we may not get fed again for a long time, if ever. So store everything. The brain works almost the exact opposite way. So once you start to really increase, for example, the amount of sugar in the brain's blood vessels, it doesn't just say absorb, absorb, absorb all this energy. What it does is actually shuts down its receptors. So it says enough, slams the door in the face of all this energy coming through the bloodstream. So what what that means literally is that you're stuffing the body and starving the brain at the same time. And I think it's, it's a good thing to keep in mind when you think about how you're eating, um, when you're eating, um, how, what you can expect to feel like a few hours later. If you just starved your brain, then it's no surprise three hours later, you're going to crash two to three hours later, you'll crash. So you didn't crash because your brain got too much energy. It's because you just starved the brain of energy because the brain just shut you down. So there's, there's a teaching point in there in term. If you understand that concept that I just described, it helps dictate many aspects of how you'll nourish yourself. And in fact, what Alzheimer's is often referred to is type three diabetes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and that, that's what I've described is a little bit of the mechanism of why they call it that. Um, we know that people who have diabetes, who have high blood sugar, even who haven't been diagnosed with diabetes, have higher rates of dementia. Why is that? You know, why, what is, is sugar inherently toxic? Probably it has a toxicity to it. But for the mechanism that I described, where it essentially leads to this energy sort of zapping of the brain, um, I think that that's another mechanism of why it's associated with, with, with high blood sugars. And as to the, how to eat, you talk about eating like a, a king, prince, pauper. So let's talk about that. And then and then I'd like to ask one more question about the gut-brain axis. And then sure. I'd like to move on to connecting with people. Okay. Well, I, I, I think with regard to how you sort of pace your calories throughout the day, 
the the idea was that if you eat, eat like a king for breakfast and then a prince for lunch and then a pauper for dinner, you're, you're front loading your calories, essentially. Most of your calories are being consumed earlier in the day. And why was that important? The, the biggest, the biggest reason I included that was that that was greatly associated with eating fewer calories overall. People who ate like that reliably consistently ate fewer calories and too much energy for all the, again, all the reasons we've been talking about on the podcast is, is bad. We eat too much. I think everyone sort of generally knows that. Um, we try and work it off through the exercise, but we just eat too much as a starting point. Um, too many calories. We don't need that many calories. So how do you, how do you in a, in a easy way, uh, or at least not hard way, start to reduce your calorie consumption? King Prince Popper was one of the ways to do that. Intermittently mm-hmm. fasting is another way to do that. I mean, you know, one of the great benefits of intermittently fasting is probably just reduction in calorie counts. That's probably where a great bit of the benefit of, of fasting comes from. Yeah. And intermittent fasting is about 16 hours between your last meal and, and, and your next meal, more, more or less. Yeah. Yeah, I, there, there's there's several different ways that people will intermittently fast. That the sixteen eight rule is one of them. Some people will do day on day off, water only one day, diff, different sorts of things. Um, reducing calorie counts significantly for a few days in a row, I think, has pretty reliably been shown to be beneficial for for all sorts of different reasons, including just reduction in calorie consumption overall. Okay. Last thing on this, and then we have to move to connection is. Gut microbiomes, the bacteria that reside in our intestines. My integrative medicine doctor, my first cousin, Felice Gersh, has been telling me about this gut-to-brain relationship, the gut-brain axis, as she calls it. I think you called it, too. Talk a little bit about that, and then I'd like to move on to our last pillar before we have to run out of time, unfortunately. The gut, the gut, many people refer to as the second brain or, or just another brain, you know, in your body. We think of the brain obviously as the brain and the skull, but your gut, um, because of the, the microbiome and all the various things that are produced, uh, you know, people don't realize, for example, serotonin. Everyone knows serotonin, right? That's the feel good sort of neurotransmitter. Do you know, Michael, where most of the serotonin is produced in your body? I'm going to guess in your gut. In the gut. It's, yeah. it's in the gut. And what is interesting is that it then has to be uh, interacted with through the foods you eat uh, to actually be then able to cross the blood-brain barrier. But most of the, the precursors for for serotonin are in your gut, and then you eat the right foods, and it makes you feel good. So feel-good foods. Like, I eat this, and I feel good. Pickles, um, one of the things I know you were, you're you're interested in fermented foods tend to be really good for converting the precursors to serotonin into serotonin, which crosses your blood brain barrier. So gosh, I'm doing crossword puzzles, but instead if I eat pickles, it's actually maybe helping my brain a great deal by making these wonderful neurotransmitters that do great things for our brain. So we can have the sauerkraut, but just not on the processed hot dog (laughs) with the white, with the white bun. Or, yes, absolutely. <laughs> We're killing ourselves with the processed food. 70% of illness in this country is preventable. We spend $4 trillion on healthcare every year. 70% of that is probably preventable. And the vast majority of that prevention probably comes from food. How mm. we nourish ourselves. The last of your five pillars, which is really, I think, critical, especially in this sort of pandemic, post-pandemic world, is the question of social connection and how 
social connection is needed uh, when it comes to brain health. So talk talk about that. I, I, I was talking about something known as BDNF before. Um, here's another hormone to sort of throw into the mix, something known as oxytocin. It's the cuddle hormone, you know, it's the hormone mothers release when they first are caring for their babies. It's, it's that real connection hormone that, that connects us humans at a pretty deep level. When you are releasing a lot of oxytocin in the presence of someone, you probably feel very connected to that person and that's measurable. Um, what, what we know is that human connection and the opposite of that isolation, there's all sorts of data now in terms of what that does for oxytocin which is uh, very important for neurogenesis and brain development overall. Um, and you find that um, one of the most reliable ways to release oxytocin, make more of it, is through having real human connection with people. What I thought was interesting, and, and what I've just said is, is not new. That, that's been known for a long time. But what I thought was interesting is how we've gotten much more granular about defining connection. Um, Having a lot of friends is not connection, not not how it's defined in the literature. Having strong friendships is. So having a few close friends is far more important than having many not as close friends. And we've known that for some time. What they have found is that the the what is it that makes strong friendships was sort of the next question. And one of the things they found was the most reliable way to predict if a, if a friendship was strong was asking yourself this question. Could you be vulnerable around that person? Could you share some, some problem or some, something about yourself in a vulnerable way with that person? And the more likely you were to respond, yes, the stronger the connection. And so those strong connections were really, really, um, the biggest predictor of, of many of the things that we're talking about. I'll tell you on a personal note, um, I, I was talking to my parents a lot. You know, we're very close. They live in a different state. And I found that when I would call them, a lot of times our phone calls would be pretty cursory. How you doing? I'm doing fine. How you doing? I'm fine. And, you know, it was, we weren't getting into deeper sort of things. And this, lo- and I was writing the book at the time and this loneliness researcher said to me, next time you're on the phone with them, ask them for help. It doesn't have to be a big thing, but just ask them for some sort of help. Show vulnerability in some way. My parents are both automotive engineers. So when we were on the phone, I said, Hey, I've been having a problem with the engine on the car and, you know, it's making this weird noise. And right away they were super engaged. Reading glasses went on. I was FaceTiming my engine with them and they were taking a look. It wasn't so much that they were helping me fix the car. It was that I had just forged a much stronger connection by being vulnerable, asking for help. So you want to build a strong connection with somebody? Ask for help. Again, you don't have to uh, do it in a way that that is going <laughs> to upend their lives, but just um, showing that vulnerability ends up being really, really important. Why I thought about this, one of the things I thought about this in reading the book was how even in our lives at, 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 at CNN, so many more of my hits, my appearances are now via Cisco at home in my mm. attic and I really miss whenever they say, do you want to come into the bureau or do you want to do it Cisco? Well, coming to the bureau is a two hour proposition. Doing it via Cisco is a 15 minute proposition. I always go to the bureau because it seemed to me that f- human interaction, face to face, touching, holding a hand, whatever yeah. was so much more valuable to me than a podcast via Zoom or a CNN hit 
via uh, FaceTime. What do you think? I totally agree, and I'm the same way. I, I I definitely get a. I can feel the buzz and the energy just being around people. I mean, you know, I, I hate to sound so uh, functional sometimes. You know, maybe it's the oxytocin that's being released, and that's good for my brain. What whatever it is, I think I totally agree with you. I and you know, coming into the office, being around people, having those even hallway interactions, stuff that you couldn't possibly do at home is really helpful. I mean, I don't, I feel for you because I know you're a busy guy and that's an extra two hour, hour, 45 minutes of your life, but I think it pays back in spades. Yeah. And I, and I think again, to our listening audience that are corporate C-suite types of people, they've got to figure out how you reintroduce people coming into the office because they've gotten so accustomed to the ease of working from home. You don't have to take a shower. You can wear pajama (laughs) bottoms, you know, um, and they say you're just as productive. I don't think so. I, I think there's so much lost by not being interactive, not only from a brain health standpoint, but from a productivity standpoint. Right. Yep. I, I totally agree. And I was going to say the exact thing that you said in the opposite way, not just from a productivity standpoint, which is all, always the argument, right? Well, I can be just as productive. And, you know, maybe, maybe the data will suggest that you are as productive, but I think all the other benefits of being around people um, that's better for the organization, but it's also better for you. I mean, I'm really worried, Michael, about loneliness and isolation in, in this country uh, and much of the developed world. Um, anything we can do to sort of counterbalance that I think is, is critically important. It's mm-hmm. it, you feel good. You feel good. You're not just going to be better, but you're going to feel good. Yeah. And that's good for brain health. That's good for brain good. health. Yes. So the the book has chapters on dementia diagnosis and caring for loved ones, which I'm going to leave to the listening audience to go buy this book. And 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 if you're in sadly that situation, um, these are important chapters. But I wanted to conclude with two things. First is I wanted to tell the listening audience that there is a companion book to Staying Sharp, which is called Twelve Weeks to a Sharper You a guided program to build a better brain at any age. And this is a great, this is a workbook. This has um, opportunities for you to fill in your, your, these charts and keep track. And, and you, and you outline a 12 week program um, that people can follow. Do you want to just give us in a nutshell, the, the structure of the 12 weeks? And then I think it's time to ask you one last question. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the work, the workbook sort of was, was born out of this idea that, that I have a lot of friends who are, who are, you know, um, very busy professionals. They went, I want to read your book. Um, can you, can you boil it down for me? You know, that type of thing, which I get. And so the 12 weeks was like, okay, look, here, here's everything I learned over two and a half years of, of researching this book. Here's not only here are the things that I think are beneficial to brain health, but I think there's a certain order that you got to do these things in. And, and recognize how they build on, on, on each other, uh, over the 12 weeks. And it's also got to be doable. I mean, I'm a busy guy, like, like many of my friends and colleagues. Um, could I do it? So I did the 12 weeks and, and I then charted it basically in a way that I thought would be, uh, really accessible for people and they could even keep track of it themselves. But I, you know, I'm really impressed with the, with the results that people have been telling me, uh, after doing the 12 weeks, just in terms of their cognitive health. Their ability to withstand challenges. Um, uh, one person said to me, 
look, we, we have these challenges in our lives every day. Um, some people are crushed by them and other people actually are strengthened by them. I went from being crushed by them to strengthened by them. And I thought you've just defined brain resilience. That, that's what it is. Same exact challenge. Why are some people crushed by it? And other people actually look at it as a good workout. I'm, I'm actually looking forward to this challenge. It's going to allow me to go to the gym, really work out my brain muscles for a while. This, I think, puts you on the, tilts you on the side of going to the gym. So that's, that's why I wrote that second book. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really, I've been using it. It's really, it's great. It's great to have a workbook. I always like workbooks. Except yeah. when I was in school, but I didn't like them <laughs> that much. I imagine you're a pretty good student, though. I would uh, have to guess. Well, I don't know. With this two point five pound brain, it was really a challenge. <laughs> so, two two last questions. The first is: um, after all this research and two and a half year process, what is the biggest takeaway we, we should be left with? Is there one or two overarching? If you can only learn something from this podcast, here's here it is. I, I think I'd answer that question in a philosophical way, um, because there's lots of specific things you can do in your life, I think, that I want people to know. But I think, you know, we wear and tear our bodies uh, throughout our lives. That That is true. Uh, your your eyes, even as you're listening to this, are changing. They're, you're, you're finding yourself having to push the paper further away, and the lens in the front of your eye yellows a bit. Cardiac function decreases to some extent. All these things happen. I think when it comes to your brain, there are changes in your brain as well. But when it comes to the things that we care the most about with regard to our brains, our ability to be cognitively intact, to be engaging, to be able to have strong memory, all these things, they don't have to wear and tear like other parts of our body do. The brain is special that way. Um, you can continue to grow new brain cells at any age of, of life. The main reason people have cognitive decline is because they're not using their brains as much anymore. And just like any other muscle, it'll it'll wear away. I mean, that's why I say don't retire. Do anything you can to just keep using your brain. And if you think of it metaphorically, like you think of anything else that will wither away if you don't use it, it'll make you use your brain. You'll do things differently. You will pick up hobbies that are uncomfortable. You'll interact with people who may have different points of view than you. You may do fewer crossword puzzles and more left-handed painting. You know, whatever it might be, um, just use the brain. If you use your brain all the time, it's, it's not going to disappoint you. It'll, it'll continue. It's not to say you can't have strokes and there aren't people who still develop Alzheimer's. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is for the vast majority of people, it will not fail you. It will continue to be strong until the day you die. I, I know people probably like you who are in their nineties and still have these remarkable conversations with them. They recall specific pages of books. They can do five digit math in their head. They can recall these wonderful life events. They're marvels. Maybe your mom was like that. Um, that didn't happen by accident, but it isn't that hard either. That, that was in fact my mom. So you have a new season of chasing life, uh, your podcast on um, weight and health. Give us a tease. What 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 are you going to be talking about uh, this, you know, this time we, around? We um we most people will think of their weight as one of the biggest predictors of their health, and and I think a lot of weight loss is is in pursuit of that, which I think is understandable. There's been a lot of attention around weight loss drugs, Wigovi and Ozempic and all these. What I really wanted to do was get at the idea of how much does your weight 
really tell you about your health. What has been considered a healthy weight has changed over time. Why? Um, and what is the, what are the drawbacks of, of, you know, when you're thinking about these medications, are they all beneficial? Are there long-term concerns with these medications? We are entering an era where people are starting to think of these weight loss medications like they do statin drugs. Once you're on it, you're on it for the rest of your life. So the idea that people in their thirties could start something like a Wigovi, an injection once a week and say for the next 50 years of my life, you know, 2,500 injections of, of this, this drug. Um, what is, what does this all mean? That's what I really wanted to get at in the season. Everyone is, is talking about this topic and these drugs. They're huge, Michael. One of these drugs has larger GDP than, than small countries. Just this one drug alone. I mean, that's how big they are in the world. What do they do and what can we expect from them long term? It's great. I look forward to it as I listen. Look forward to listening to everything you present on the podcast and on on Thank CNN. So the book is Keep Sharp, Build a Better Brain at Any Age. Dr. Gupta, I'm so grateful for you to appear with us today on That Said. I always love our conversations. Thanks for the time, Michael. Thank you. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please address any comments or questions to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. For That Said, I am Michael Zeldin. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.